Well, I'm going to invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, the passage that Jeff just read for us. And as you're turning to that page in your Bible, I'm going to ask you to also pray with me as we begin. Should we pray together? Father, what we know not, we'd ask that you would teach us what we do not have, we ask that you would give us what we are not yet. We ask that you would make us, and all this for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Question as we begin this morning. Have you ever wiped out or slipped in public or in private in a way that brought you embarrassment or even pain? Perhaps you've uh, slipped in private, or maybe you thought it might be in private, like you're walking through the grocery store near the produce aisle, and your foot kind of slips out from under you, and you catch yourself real quick, and you look around, see if anyone's noticed, and you turn red, and you feel a little embarrassed, and no one's paying you any attention, and you just keep going on with your day. That's just embarrassing, not a big deal, right? Sometimes slips can be a little more painful, though. Uh, perhaps the most pain I have ever experienced is when my wife and I were headed out the door to an engagement and uh, I was running down the stairs, carpeted stairs, in uh, my socks and moving very rapidly. About four steps from the top, I slipped and my momentum carried me out about eight feet and down eight or nine feet where I landed on the last couple of steps uh, on well, where you would land uh, the last couple of steps, and um, I was in some intense pain for the next few moments of life. Sometimes slips are embarrassing. Sometimes they're just downright painful. Sometimes slips can be devastating, though. Uh, Perhaps you remember just back in May of last year up at Greenway Farms, a couple of hikers were out hiking, slipped, and fell off a cliff. They were both rescued, One had a broken leg, and one had back injuries. Sometimes slips can be devastating. To avoid a slip or a fall or a wipeout, there's some pretty good advice that will keep you in in pretty good shape if you take it. It's the three simple words, watch your step, right? Just, Just watch your step. Now, that's pretty good advice if you're walking or hiking or running or when you're running down a flight of carpeted stairs, but it's not great advice for the spiritual life. Paul has already given his intended goal for his letter, and we looked at it last week. His intended goal for his readers is that they would walk worthy of the Lord. But when we come down to verse 22, we find an uncomfortable reference, an uncomfortable possibility. Paul says there's a chance that a professing believer, one who claims to follow Christ, can be shaken in potentially devastating ways. He says in verse 22, you Colossian believers, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 
See, as they began their walk with Christ, Paul desires that they would continue walking worthy of him in the same way, not losing their spiritual footing, not slipping, but continuing, persevering. And in these words, we see this possibility. It is possible for someone to not continue in the faith, to shift their hope from the gospel. That is not to say they lose their salvation. That is to say they do not cling to the gospel which saves. As this author tells us, Paul knows that true Christian faith is the beginning of a life which, given, will, given by God, will be brought to completion by him. He also knows that genuine faith is seen in patient and steadfast day-to-day Christian living, while counterfeit faith, so hard in its early stages to distinguish from the real thing, withers and dies. From God's point of view, genuine faith is assured of continuing to the end. But from the human point of view, Christians discover whether their faith is of the genuine sort only by patient perseverance encouraged by the Christian hope. So if you desire to follow Christ this morning, then you desire to walk worthy of the Lord and you desire to remain stable and to persevere. I have no doubt of that. But even if you aren't a follower of Christ and you're sitting here, my guess is that you still desire stability. You still desire stability in your inner world, even if the outer world is in chaos, a stability that will prepare you and sustain you. So spiritually, how do we keep from slipping as we walk the Christian life? Well, here's our big idea this morning. To keep your footing, watch your head. To keep your footing, watch your head. Now, I'm taking the word head directly from our text. Jesus is called the head of his body in verse 18. If we long for stability, if we desire perseverance, if we want a firm faith and all that makes for true human flourishing, in short, if we want to keep our footing, then we need to watch our head. But why? What is so important about our head, the Lord Jesus? Why should we keep our eyes on him? Well, for two reasons, and these are the points that we will look at today. Number one, because he is our sovereign creator, and number two, because he is the saving reconciler. He's the sovereign creator and the saving reconciler. Number one, he's the sovereign creator. Now look down at verses 14 through 20 in your Bible. These verses are actually a poem. There's some debate whether or not they're even an early Christian hymn. In the original, you can see the parallelism and the structure within this poem. And I don't expect you to be able to read the words on this photo on the screen, but I hope that you can at least see from the picture where you're seated a visual of the structure. There are four different stanzas in this poem. In the ESV, each is marked out by the repetition of he is. Look at verse 15. He is. Verse 17 he is. Beginning of verse 18, he is. End of verse 18, he is. So the first and last of these four stanzas are the longest. 
Stanzas one and two group together, communicate one reality, while stanzas three and four communicate a separate but related idea. So notice first how Paul describes Jesus. He says he is the image of the invisible God. Now these words are intended to take us back to the book of Genesis where God creates man in his own image. But prior to that creation event, Jesus, as the pre-existent Son of God, was himself the image of God, reflecting God's character and his beauty and his glory in perfection. Now, in the incarnation, God the Son took flesh and made God visible in his own person. Jesus has always been God's image, and so in Jesus, we see this invisible God clearly. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity. And perhaps you would identify as an agnostic. You're not sure if anyone can truly know whether or not God exists. And perhaps you have even thought this before, if God would simply show himself to me in some way, then I would have faith and I would become a Christian. I could know that he is for real because I could actually see him. But do you see that this verse is telling us this is exactly what has happened? God, in the person of Jesus, has taken on flesh. God has been made visible. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And we have a historically accurate, reliable account of who Jesus is and what he's like in the four Gospels. But maybe, rather than being an agnostic, you're here and you really dislike the whole idea of God as Father because of your own experience of what it means to be a father. Perhaps your experience with your father was a relationship that lacked the sacrificial love and support and care and compassion and leadership that should accompany that role. But here's where the gospel comes to bear for you. The gospel is really good news because if you would in good faith give a careful reading of all four gospels, you would see the beauty and the character of the perfect father in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his perfect image-bearing son. And that care and that compassion towards you resulted in the Father, Son, and Spirit covenanting together for the saving of your soul through the life, death, burial, in short, the sacrificial death of the Son. Or maybe you're here and you detest the inherent patriarchal structure found in the words God the Father. To you, The fact that God would identify himself as father seems to demote womanhood altogether. It seems to degrade femaleness to a lower plane of importance. But if you would commit to reading the Gospels of Jesus Christ with an open mind, you would see that in every interaction with a woman, without exception, Jesus elevated her dignity, her humanity, 
dignified her existence, honored her story, and cared for her, cared for her as an image bearer of God, not as an object. And in so doing, he undermined the cultural norms that debased and degraded women. So God the Father will not unmake himself the Father for your sake to answer your objections, but he has revealed his perfect character in the person of Jesus Christ, who is himself the image of the invisible God. And you, if you will but explore his teachings and his character, you will see that Jesus is perfection himself. But Jesus is also described here as the firstborn of all creation. Not just the image of the invisible God, but the firstborn of all creation. Now, if we were to take a drive down to the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses over on Glass Street, and we were to walk in and ask them about this specific phrase, they would tell us that it means Jesus is a part of, the, of creation. In that religion, Jesus was Michael, the archangel, who then became man. He was never God, is not God. He was an angel, became a man. If we were to visit the Latter-day Saints building near Hickson on a Sunday, or if we walked into the Islamic Center at Highway 41 and Central Street, we would find that they agree on this one point. Jesus is a part of the created order. For the Latter-day Saint, he is the firstborn child of Elohim. He was conceived by normal sexual relations between Elohim and Mary, according to the Latter-day Saint. The Muslim would argue Jesus was the biological son of Joseph and Mary. For both of those religions, Jesus is simply a part of creation. And the reality is, in a pluralistic world, it's not polite for me to say what I'm about to say. Each of those three perspectives is wrong. Christianity is the only religion to describe Jesus as he actually is, truly God and truly man. He is not a part of creation. He is the creator. So what does Paul mean when he says Jesus is the firstborn of creation? Well, firstborn in Scripture can mean someone who is born first, first in time. But it also took on a metaphorical meaning, first in rank or first in importance. In fact, in Psalm 89, God describes making the Davidic king his firstborn, not physically actually his firstborn but metaphorically he would be the first in importance and here paul picks up that language and in actually a reference to psalm 89 says jesus is that firstborn the first of rank first in importance that god made he is the davidic king rather not that god made as in created but god made him the firstborn in rank Paul picks up that language and reminds us that Jesus is the one who is supreme over creation. So when it says he's the firstborn of creation, that word of can be translated over. He's the firstborn 
over creation. And the very next phrase, if we have any questions further about it, describes just in what way Jesus is the firstborn. So look at it with me, verse 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Jesus is the first in rank in creation precisely because he's the cause of creation. By him all things were created. Now, if we were to go back to Genesis 1 and the creation account, you would not see Jesus show up. You would not see any reference, seemingly, to the Son of God. So how can Paul say that Jesus is the cause of creation? Well, if we were to turn to Proverbs chapter 8, we would see an idea of wisdom, and wisdom is personified personified as being present at creation and not just being present at creation but actually involved in the creative work and here Paul explains that Jesus in whom is hid all wisdom as he'll tell us later was the agent by whom God created everything the apostle John would say it this way in John chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So what exactly did Jesus create? Everything. From the Himalayans, to the Smokies, to Lookout Mountain. From the Atlantic Ocean to the Tennessee River, from the burning orb of gas in the sky that we call the sun, to the Milky Way of which our little corner of the solar system of the universe is a part, to the millions upon millions of galaxies that the Hubble ta Space Telescope has discovered and sent us images of. Jesus is the Creator of each microbe, each ladybug, each blade of grass, each beautiful tree, each rocky cliff. And you. He is your creator. Whether you receive that or not, He made you and He loves you. This is one reason why we as Christians celebrate the sanctity of human life. All life. From the president with his secret service attachment to the homeless drug addict on the streets to the woman with Alzheimer's with no living relatives in the nursing home to the unborn child in the womb to children in foster care. Human life is inherently sacred because it is not given by anyone but the Creator, the Sovereign God. And notice the categories that Paul gives. Whether those things are in heaven or on earth, whatever are, exists on our physical planets or in the heavenly places we call the space, or in heaven where God dwells, if it was created, it was created by Jesus. 
And that means whether it's visible or invisible. We often only think of the things that we see, but listen to Sam Storms and how he describes the different realities of creation. Allow your mind to expand with the depth and breadth of Jesus' creative work. The all things include what you can see and can't see, whether visible but intangible, like a mirage or a beam of light. Whether invisible but tangible, like a summer breeze or the heart, the heat of the sun. Whether visible and tangible, like an oak tree or a book or a baseball. Even things invisible and intangible, like proton or gravity or a feeling or a dream, he conceived them all. They were all Jesus' idea. But then Paul notes the extent of Jesus' authority in light of his creative work. Do you catch that? It extends over thrones or dominions or authorities. By nature of the fact that he created each and every power structure, he holds all authority. Every power that exists outside of the Godhead, whether angelic or demonic, whether institutional or national, governmental, societal, economic, every single one has been conceived by Jesus. He did not create them in their fallen and broken state as we see them today, but he conceived them nonetheless. And none of them are outside of his sovereign power. And while we may be uncomfortable with the unseen demonic world linked in the same sentence with societal and governmental structures, another author, N.T. Wright, helps us with this connection. We should not ignore the supernatural or demonic elements in these powers. Anything to which human beings offer the allegiance proper only to God is capable of assuming and exerting a sinister borrowed power. For Paul, the powers were unseen forces working in the world through pagan religion, astrology, or magic, or through the oppressive systems that enslaved or tyrannized human beings. No power structures are, however, independent of Christ, for all things were created by him and for him. Again, that does not blame Jesus for the broken and fallen state of power structures today, but that is to say that Jesus holds all authority. It also says, the verse says, he's before all things. Christ is put forth as the sum and the substance of that wisdom that was present at creation. He was part and parcel of the creative process, process pre-existent separate independent of everything else in the universe in him paul goes on and says all things hold together he not only created all things but all things are holding together through him john piper says this no creature has a principle of ongoing existence in itself apart from god's perpetual preservation the agent of that perpetual preservation is jesus christ he's not just the architect who designed it all he's not just the builder that constructed it all 
He's also the one for whom it exists, the one who enjoys its existence, and the one who cares for it while it exists. So do me a favor. Take a deep breath right now and let it out. That breath was a gift from Jesus, your creator. By that breath, he is sustaining your life right now. And you may feel like your inner world is a mess. And you may feel like the world in which you live is chaotic and unstable at best. That it's nothing but challenge and difficulty in your life. But friend, hear this. In order to keep your footing, lift your eyes from the chaos around you and the chaos within you and place your eyes upon the one who created you. Watch your head. He is the sovereign creator. He cherishes you right now as part of his creation. He is sustaining you and your life right now in the midst of chaos. If Jesus were to let go of his hand, so to speak, we would fly out and disintegrate into nothingness. But he won't do that because he loves his creation. And if you are following him as your savior, allow his glory as the sovereign creator to encourage you, to buoy you in the turbulence and the discouragements of life. The one who gave his life for you sustains your life right now. He delights in his creation and that means he delights in you right now. And that also means as sovereign creator, he is to be loved He's to be honored, he's to be worshipped, he's to be followed. And this is where we transition from the first creation to the new creation. Just as Jesus is to be honored and exalted due to his relationship to the first creation, a relationship of creator to created, so Jesus' relationship to his new creation demands a response from those within his new creation, from those within the big C, capital C, church, and in the lives of those who make up the church. So to keep your footing, to walk worthy of Jesus, watch your head, excuse me, watch your head because he's the sovereign creator, and number two, because he's the saving reconciler. Look down at verse 18. Verse 18 is a pivot verse in this poem. It takes us from the first creation to the new creation of which the church is the foremost visible representative. Jesus Christ is, the verse says, the head of the church. He is the authority, the sovereign one over it. The church is even described as his body. He is the head of the body, the church. Paul goes on to describe him as the beginning Because Jesus is the first in time to experience the reality of the new creation. What do you mean by that, Isaiah? That he was created? No. His resurrection from the dead inaugurated the restoration of all things. While he was not the first in time to be resurrected, we could go to numerous passages in the Old Testament and see individuals that were raised from the dead prior to Christ's resurrection. But all those individuals died again. That resurrection was a temporary resurrection. 
But Jesus' resurrection is the first of the new creation. After Jesus' resurrection, he will never die again. Everyone has or will experience death, even those who had experienced resurrection in the past, whose stories we read in Scripture, but not Jesus. So what's going on in these verses? This, man's three greatest enemies, sin, death, and rebel powers against God, all of those have been dealt with by Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He conquered sin and sin's power. He exhausted the power of death. What is the power of death? Well, it's death, right? He took the power of death, death, to its absolute exhaustion point. He died. And then what did he do? He conquered death's power. Death has no more power. He took it to its limit and he defeated it. But the ultimate defeat is to take your enemy to the grave and then to have your enemy conquer the worst that you can do to him. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He took his enemy, or rather his enemy took him to the grave, but Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus is the preeminent one. We've got to keep our eyes on him in order to keep our footing. But notice Paul's not done. He just keeps stacking phrase upon phrase upon phrase to describe the glory of Jesus Christ. Further, Paul says God was pleased that all his fullness would dwell in Jesus. And this is the mystery of the Trinity, right? Jesus is God, but Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is not a demigod. He's not a little God. He's not a lesser God. He is truly God. He is truly the Son of the Father, and yet He is truly not the Father. Yet, all the Father's fullness dwells in Him. But it also pleased the Father, not just to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus, but it also pleased the Father to reconcile to Himself all things in Jesus. Do you see that in the passage? To reconcile means to bring about a change in relationships between parties that are estranged. We understand the idea, the concept of reconciliation in our culture. Here, the entire created world is estranged from God, estranged from God, because of mankind's own activities. Mankind is an enemy of God in his mind by his wicked works. The passage tells us. This was not God's original design. This was man's choice to rebel against God. And the creation itself is suffering because of that. But God, through Jesus, has purposed to bring about at last the restoration of all of those broken relationships. Remember our definition of the gospel that we gave last week and that I'll be returning to frequently throughout our study of Colossians. Here it is. God the Father, by His Spirit, saves sinners and restores His creation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The reconciliation of all things to the Father is part of the restoration of creation to its natural created order. What is that natural created order? Submissiveness to the Father. Enjoying the blessing of rightly ordered relations with Him through the Son. And that is what happens by means of Jesus' shed blood. So in a few moments, when we gather around the table and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating both the forgiveness of our sin and our relationship restored with our Creator. And at the same time, we are anticipating the time when creation that is currently groaning is restored. When it's restored to its glory, when the sons and daughters of God receive their inheritance. And that is what we celebrate and anticipate even as we participate in the beginning of that renovation now, today. Now, do you remember what comes immediately prior to our section that we looked at this morning? Look up at verses 12 through 14. Paul is laying out the content of his prayer And he references that if his prayer is answered, it will result in, verse 12, the Colossian believers giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the individual realities of salvation, of which there are many, those individual realities those reasons for which we thank God with joy as we meditate upon them, those are continued into verse 21. These are reasons for thanking God. So follower of Jesus, as we read verse 21, notice your past. You were alienated from God. You were an enemy in your intellect and in your way of thinking, which affected your activity and resulted in evil deeds. But, follower of Jesus, notice you are present. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. He has made peace between you and his just wrath against your sin. And how did he do that? How did he remove his own sin pointed at you, or rather his own wrath pointed at you for your sin? He did that by his shed blood. So, follower of Jesus, notice your future. Verse 22, he did all of this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And finally, follower of Jesus, notice your role in all of this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of this gospel. So do you want to keep your footing? Watch your head. Don't allow your feet to shift from the hope of the gospel. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the invitation is open to you. Currently, if you're not following Jesus, you stand, whether knowingly or in ignorance, 
alienated from God. An enemy due to how you think and what you do. But if you will repent from your sin and turn to Jesus as the sovereign creator and the saving saving reconciler, then he stands ready to receive you, to welcome you into his kingdom. He will cover your sin and your rebellion. He will qualify you to be a son or a daughter. He will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into his beloved kingdom, his wonderful kingdom. He will forgive you and reconcile you to God. He has made peace with God for you by his cross if you will but enter through him. So will you enter that peace today? May God give us grace as a church family to faithfully watch our head so that we keep our footing, so that we would continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, until he returns. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you so grateful that you are the sovereign creator. We thank you for the beauty of the world that you have made, that you remind us by the created things of your power and your divine nature. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not leave us simply with your creation to try to grasp our way after you, but you came in flesh as God to remove your own wrath against our sin by giving yourself as a sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you for reconciling us to God by means of your shed blood. We praise you. Father, we praise you. Spirit, we thank you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.